Good morning. Good to see everybody, along with Pastor Ron. I would like to welcome you to worship this morning. As we begin and, and think about our, our text this, this morning, uh, just a reminder about what we heard last week. If you were here last week or happened to, to listen online, uh, Pastor Ron taught us about Christ, the living stone, who is the foundation for all who believe. And it's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we become living stones. We also learned that unbelievers cannot frustrate or defeat the purposes of God. Disbelief will not thwart God's ultimate purposes of glorifying His Son. This morning, uh, Peter turns his, his attention back to the people of God. And as we prepare to hear from God's Word, I want to ask you a question. Who are you? Who are you? When I asked that question, many of you probably thought of your name. But the question of who we are or who are you, our identity, it can be much broader than a simple name. Our identity is often grounded in where we work, where we grew up, what people uh, who, what people we associate with, what part of town we live in, where we go to school, where we went to college, what teams we cheer for, and so on. People, people often relate to us based on what they identify us with. And I personally experienced this a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're in the middle of what is known as March Madness. It's a nickname given to the, the college basketball tournament uh, for the 64 best teams to compete for the national championship. And, and two weeks ago, I was actually up here at church with the middle school students. On that, that night, the teams were announced. And at 6.03, my phone lit up like the 4th of July. I received several texts. Why? I went to college at Mississippi State University, and it was announced that Mississippi State was going to play Liberty. People identified me with Mississippi State and wanted to let me know, to know uh, that the two teams were going to play each other. A few days later, when Liberty went on to defeat Mississippi State, there was even more reason to text me. <laughs> all in love, of course. All in love. All in love. Why? Again, to some people, they hear Mississippi State, and they think shame. That is part of who I am. But what about Christians? Who does God say that we are? In our text, Peter focuses on this very thing. And we're also told how to live and how we became who we are. So we will read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We'll read that for context. And the focus of our sermon will be on verses 9 and 10. This is God's holy word. Peter writes this. 
as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that your mercies are made new every morning. Lord, thank you that we can gather this morning to worship you. And Lord, as we come to your word, now Lord, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, that you would give us hearts to understand, that you would give us ears to listen, and Lord, that you would speak to us. Now Lord, I pray that during this time that, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. And for the mighty and precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So, who are we? Who are we? Peter, in our text, describes the people of God using four different titles, drawing from the Old Testament. And he gives these titles to Christians. And the first thing we learn is that we are a chosen race. The heart of our salvation and being the people of God is based on the fact that God chose us. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 4 tells us, even as He, that is God, chose us in Him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Just as Israel was a chosen people, a chosen nation, the same is true for us. And we got to remember that God did not choose Israel or us because we were the best of the best. Israel was small and insignificant. And remember that God often chooses the foolish, the weak, and the despised. 
author Michael Horton says this. He says, there is no room for pride. Instead, election, God choosing us, it turns to our, our proud hearts and replies, you are saved because Christ said yes to you. God has chosen people individually throughout the world. And Peter tells us that the individuals, people, are a chosen race. This is who we are. And God's eternal plan is unfolding through His chosen race. Secondly, we are a royal priesthood. Peter takes us back to Exodus chapter 19. And the Lord speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai just before He gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Then in in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we read this. If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What these verses say about Israel have become a fact for believers. Through His perfect life, Jesus kept the covenant for us. His death fulfilled the sacrifices. And His shed blood provided cleansing and forgiveness for us. We are now that royal priesthood who need none but Christ to stand between us and the Father. This priesthood we are part of is royal because it belongs to and is in service of the King. The King of the universe. Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And He rules with justice and righteousness. In Christ There is a true priesthood of all believers. All of us who trust in Jesus alone for salvation have free access into His presence. Martin Luther said that all we who are Christians are priests. And no believer has greater access to the Creator than any other. Our status in society does not matter. We can all approach the throne of grace with confidence because we belong to the royal priesthood. It is who we are. Next, we are a holy nation. Going back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Israel was a holy nation because it was set apart or consecrated to the service of God. The Ten Commandments and other Old Testament laws were given in order to make Israel different than its pagan neighbors. Israel was to be a light to the nations and a witness to the one true God. This was God's plan for His people all along. 
And in that text, it says this. The Lord says, the earth is all mine. I own the entire earth. But you, Israel, you, you have the special privilege of being holy, of being set apart in order to have a a closeness and a relationship with the Lord. And through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ, all believers have become a part of this holy nation. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, said that we are chosen so that we should be what? So that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Holiness is our distinguishing characteristic. And it is because of Christ we are separate from sin and set apart for God and His purposes. Just as Israel was set apart to glorify God and live lives that reflect the character and nature of God. Likewise, we are a holy nation called to do good works so that the world may see and glorify our Father in heaven. Finally, we learn, we think about who we are. We are people of his own possession. The value of an object sometimes lies in the fact that a person of special importance has owned it. In a Philadelphia museum, you can see a pair of glasses that belong to Thomas Edison. In Cooperstown, New York, at the Baseball Hall of Fame, you can see a a baseball uniform that Babe Ruth wore. In Memphis, you can visit the house Elvis Presley lived in during the height of his popularity. And as much as it pains me to say, one of my high school soccer uniforms isn't going to attract quite the same crowd as one of Pele's soccer uniforms. Again, worth often comes from ownership. God possesses His people because He redeemed them by the precious blood of Christ. And now we are people of His own possession. We are infinitely valuable. Every morning when we rise, when we get out of bed, may we remember that. May we remember who owns us. Now that Peter has told us who we are, he's going to let us know how we should live. So how do we live? Because we are God's possession, we have the privilege of being His messengers to a world in need of a Savior. The first part of verse 9 tells us what? That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Okay, so how do we live? That you may may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Nowhere else in Scripture will you find a clear statement of what the church is all about. 
The purpose of the church is to declare the praises of Him who saved us. Our evangelism is rooted in doxology. And that simply means praise. Praise of God. The reason that we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us is because God has given us an identity. And He is worthy of all praise and honor. The Psalms remind us again and again to declare the glory and deeds of God to the nations. We are God's people and we should want the entire world to know what God has done for us. We should desire for people from every tribe and language and nation to know the God who has called us out of darkness into light. Proclaiming what God has done and sharing the gospel, it may seem to contradict election. Like you just told us that we're a chosen people. And this is one of the major objections to the doctrine of election, to God choosing people before the foundation of the world. If God already has chosen His people and knows who He's going to save, why do we need to proclaim this? Why do I need to do why do I need to share the gospel? Why do we as a church need to do missions? It's a great question. Why do we share the gospel? Why should we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? The late, uh, great theologian, R.C. Sproul, he told this story. When he was in seminary, that very question was posed to the class. Why do we do missions if, if God has chosen his people? And as you can imagine, the class was kind of silent. And there's several seconds, he says, and and R.C. finally broke the awkward silence. And he simply said this, because the Bible tells us to. His his professor said, exactly! What other reason do we need besides God's Word commanding us to share the Gospel? That should be enough. Also, how humbling it is that God allows us to take part in something that He could do much better than we ever could. Evangelism is a means to an end. And Peter tells us to proclaim what God has done for us by bringing us out of darkness and into light. Therefore, we we share the Gospel and we can rest in the fact that God will do the saving. There is so much less pressure in evangelism when we know that we can't convince anyone to believe. And I remember when I first got here, first two or three years, I had many sleepless nights after RFN putting so much pressure on myself on Wednesday nights, thinking I blew that. You didn't say the right thing. 
so much less pressure. We just simply proclaim and share. God saves. In Mark chapter 5, we read something similar about this. With a man possessed by a legion of demons. He lived among the tombs. He would break the chains and he would cut himself with stones. Jesus heals him and saves him. And as Jesus is leaving, this man, is he's begging to go with Jesus. Jesus, let me go with you. Jesus says, no. No. You stay here. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He's had mercy on you. That's it. That is how we live. We tell others how much the Lord has done for us. So how did this happen? How did this happen? To make us thankful and to better understand what God has done for us, Peter encourages us to compare our former and present states. It is good to look back and remember what we were in the past. We just talked about that we were in darkness. Now we're in light. And then in verse, verse 10 we read this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 10 again takes us back to the Old Testament and to the book of Hosea chapter 1. To a time when the Lord says about Israel that Israel, you were not a people. And He says to them, I will no longer show you mercy. Israel was disclaimed and divorced. And Peter tells us that is what it was like for us. But because of the faithfulness of God and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are taken in again to be the people of God. And we have received mercy. This is what happened. We received mercy. Faced with the reality that we have done nothing to deserve our status, that is based on completely on the mercy of God, it should have a profound effect on the way that we live. We should be a humble people. But often our posture is not one of humility. We act like that we have figured something out that others haven't. That we are smarter than those who do not believe. That we said yes to Christ. Even when everything in Scripture in regards to our salvation tells us the complete opposite. It is for good reason that Paul tells us that the Gospel is foolishness to the world. From the perspective of of human wisdom, God defeating sin, death, and Satan by having His Son die on the cross makes no sense. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. May we always remember that the Word of God is spiritual. It is super 
natural. And the only reason that this book makes an ounce of sense to us is that the Holy Spirit has given us the ability to understand it. God has been gracious to us. First Peter says, we have received mercy. This also should affect our conversations and comments to unbelievers in person and on social media. But when that screen is in front of us, right? And not a person, we often become bolder and harsher in what we say to those who may not believe. So as we interact with those who doubt and don't believe, we should be the humblest, most gracious people in the world. Jude, in his epistle, gives us a great reminder about mercy. In verse 22, Jude simply writes, And have mercy on those who doubt. Why would Jude write that? If anyone knew about the mercy of God and remembering how we are saved, it is Jude. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. Right? We, We joke about having siblings or knowing people who can do no wrong. People who never get in trouble. It was a reality that Jude faced every day. He literally had a perfect brother. Then as Jesus began His ministry, the miracles, the healings, and the crowds, and if you think, if anyone would have immediately believed in Jesus, it would have been Jude and his brothers. But what do we read in John chapter 7, verse 5? We read this, For not even his brothers believed in Him. Do we now understand why Jude says have mercy on those who doubt? Why we need to remember that the only reason we are who we are is because we have received mercy. If we are arrogant and prideful and look down on or talk down to people who do not believe, we do not understand or reflect the true nature of how we were saved. We have done nothing. God has done everything. We receive mercy. Let our lives, our conversations, and our comments reflect that. And as we conclude, let us remember that all our lives and the sins that we commit in reality, they demand justice. We deserve the exact opposite of what we have received. We deserve death and eternal separation from God. But God gave Jesus what we deserve by pouring His wrath out on His Son at the cross. And because of the life and death of Christ, God has extended mercy to a people who otherwise would want nothing to do with Him. This merciful act allows us to know who we are. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. And a people for His own possession. May we proclaim this to the glory of God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we are grateful for Your 
mercy. And Lord, thank you for giving us an identity. And Lord, help us to be gracious and kind and merciful and loving to those who may doubt or not believe. And Lord, may you you use our, our feeble attempts at evangelism to change hearts, to bring people to, into your kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would extend the same mercy to those who do not believe that you have extended to us who do believe. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.